That is physical suffering. How do we respond to bodily illnesses? I think he seems to be saying in this section here that we have this privilege of relating even this back to God. We're to bring this back to God when we have these issues. Uh, and he's going to give us how we do that. We officially enlist the church to pray for us, to pray with us. And, and again, the primary issue here is not, not the healing of our sickness or our suffering, but how do we respond to that? That's the issue here that he's really focusing on. It's not whether you get healed or you don't get healed, but what do you do in that situation? How do you respond to that? So this is what he's actually addressing is our response to various needs and problems and issues, if you will. Um, Basically, I think this section that we're looking at this morning has to do with suffering is something to be understood and dealt with from the divine perspective. So when we, we encounter suffering, we need to be looking at it from God's perspective. What does God say about it? What does he want us to do about it? How should we react to it? What should we do? And so this is, uh, these are some, some things that James is going to uh, tell us about this morning. First of all, uh, let me just read the passage and we'll go back and look at the verses. And, and again, I think uh, the real issue today in churches, the problems in churches, there's no exposition of the text. People do not, do not exegete what's here. They're giving you grandma's biscuit stories. They're giving you this, how to do this, how to fix your roof, how to fix your car, but they're not giving you what's here, what does God say, and bringing that out. And that's, that's, our, that's our challenge, that's our task as teachers, is to, is to exegete what God says. So this is what we're doing this morning. Let me just read the passage, and we'll go back and look at it. Verse 14 of James chapter 5, you have a scripture. Uh, we'd like for you to follow along with me if you would. We also have outlines on the back if you would like one of those. He says in verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins one to another, and pray one for another, so that you may be healed. That's where I'll stop, and then we'll get into the other stuff next week. Um. First of all, the question, is any among you suffering or sick? Actually, he starts his letter with, if you're having troubles, he says in verse 2 of chapter 1, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, testings, difficulties in your faith here. So, you, you encounter afflictions, you're to do that. Count it all joy, trust in the Lord in these things. Commit it back to the Lord. Again, uh, Bring these things back to God, if you will. Um, and so, basically, he, he does that with general adversity, but here he's dealing with something specific, suffering, sickness, personal affliction, if you will, physical health and well-being in this case. Uh, he, he uses a word, uh, if any man, the authorized version has sick, the New American Standard has suffer. Um, it's, a, it's kind of a general term, if you will, um, it just means it's, it's a broad, it covers a lot of things. Uh, it covers uh, sickness, uh, weakness, infer- in, I'm infirm, I'm ill, I'm deficient, I don't have strength. Um, and it very often is 
translated to mean bodily affliction, bodily sickness. Um, for instance, in Matthew 10, 10 8, uh, Jesus tells the disciples, Heal the sick. That's his word. Go heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you receive, freely give. Philippians 2.26 says, You have heard that Epaphroditus was sick. Paul's writing back to the church of Philippi. They'd sent Epaphroditus to be his helper. Epaphroditus got sick, physically sick. And he, he almost died there. So this is the same word that we're talking about here in James. And then in John 11, where Lazarus, whom Jesus loved, was ill. That's the same word. He was sick. He physically had some issues here. Sickness and suffering are facts of life. They often bring physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual weakness and defeat. You know, when we're sick, it's it's hard to think straight. It's hard to think right. I think about people in a time of funeral. They'll say nasty things to one another. But we just emotionally we're drained. We're shot. We just we can't handle things like we would normally if we weren't sick. If we weren't going through these ordeals and these afflictions, if you will. And so it's during these times of affliction and suffering and sickness like this that um, we tend to question God's more than at any God's love for us more than any other time. Maybe God doesn't love me. We may not admit that, but that, sometimes that's going to go through our brain. Um, basically, he, he, sickness is a fact of life, and and we're going to we're going to deal with it sometime, and it it causes some real issues not only physically but emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Uh, the question here, is any of you sick, any of you suffering, is any among you, he says, sick? So it seems obvious here that among you would imply that Christians actually get sick. Uh, we, we actually, among you, we were the ones that are sick here. Um, we're not exempted from sickness. Uh, Lazarus, whom you love, remember now, we doubt God's love in these times. He po- points out here clearly that Lazarus whom Jesus loved, is sick. So people that God loves still get sick. Among you, get sick. Uh, The idea is this mystery of iniquity or human suffering and death are the results of sin and are part of our fallenness of our race. We're part of that. And that with that fallenness and sinfulness and uh, being children of Adam comes uh, sickness and death, if you will. Sin, sickness, and death. Genesis 2.17, the day you eat, you shall surely die. Uh, 3.3, three, uh, uh, you're going to die. Romans 5.12, uh, by one man sin entered, entered into the world and, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men and all, all sin and all die. So because we're uh, susceptible to sickness and death, uh, because we're sinners, we're susceptible to sickness and death. It's interesting that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, even though He endured injustices, affliction, pain, He doesn't ever seem to have been sick, and He doesn't ever, never required somebody to pray for Him that He get well. And I'm sure Mary would say, "Why can't you be like your brother Jesus?" You know, when the kids are growing up, why can't you be like Jesus? Well, Jesus was the sinless Son of God, but that, we're not. All right, we are not. We're not Jesus, and we're sinners. And we're all going to get sick. So, if any uh, among you are sick here, then he gives the official response here, <clears throat> having described this, the circumstance here that 
there are those in the, in the body of Christ that actually are sick. He gives here this official response to this in verse 14. Let them call for the elders of the church. So, again, the, this uh, suffering, sickness, if you will, what are we to do about this? Well, officially, he says, uh, you're to call for the elders of the church. Who, who's responsible to call? Let me just clarify some things here before we, we move on. First of all, the responsibility, the duty to call for the elders of the church lies with the sick person. Are those responsible for that sick? Sometimes he can't do it, so somebody next to him has to say, hey, you guys, you elders, get over here. We need you to pray for this person, all right? But the sick person is to take the initial step of faith and ask the elders to come. Uh, it carries the idea of an official summons or an enlistment of the church, the whole church. The elders represent the church, the whole church. So when the elders come, it's the church coming. The church comes to your side, if you will. And so uh, you call, the responsible, the person that's to call is, is, is the person that's undergoing the sickness, the illness here. And notice this request is not conveyed automatically or magically. The church doesn't have mental telepathy. You know, we don't just, oh, I think so-and-so's sick. I better go by their house and check on them. We don't know these things. So you have to call us and tell us, hey, I need somebody to come over and pray for us. Uh, and again, we should note that this is not giving warrant for us to, as a church to set up a tent and advertise, for, come on in and we'll all heal you. We'll all lay hands on you and, and we'll heal you. This kind of stuff. Um, this is what the great counterfeiter Satan will do. And this kind of foolishness where we, we advertise, we can heal anything, just bring them on in, we'll lay hands on them, we'll heal them. This is foolish. This is a, this is a misconstruing of what James is talking about here. Uh, actually, it, when that happens, when, that, when people see that foolishness and people aren't healed, then it, it turns them off to the truth. What does heal? Actually, it's like people that are always setting dates for Christ's coming. After a while, people don't want to hear anything about Christ's coming because I've just, I, you said He was coming, He didn't come. Or you said you could be healed and you weren't healed. You see how this, this works in a negative way toward what, isn't, this isn't anything what He's talking about here. This isn't what He's speaking about. He's not talking about setting up a tent and having a crusade to heal people. All right? Make sure you understand that. I'm from a charismatic background. I was raised in a charismatic church. So I have this kind of resistance toward that anyway. But anyway, I do, I've seen a whole lot of the foolishness that's connected with that. And it, and it really turns people off to the truth. So, I mean, if that's not true, this is not true here. This, this is where they get that. This is not where they get that. So they're not, they're not paying attention to James here. So, the person called, let him call, and I think the concern here is primarily for the sick person's spiritual needs. You don't see that much in the tent meetings. But it's really, they're concerned about this person's spiritual needs. Otherwise, James would have said, let him call for the doctor. He doesn't say call for the doctor. He says, call for who? The elders of the church. Now, when you're physically sick, you should call for the doctor. Jesus said in Mark 2.17 that um, <clears throat> they that were uh, whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. So the implication is sick people do need a physician. Uh, uh, 
little little Roxley uh, Doss, she did need chemotherapy. She did need radiation therapy. She did. She should call for the doctor, and we should. When we're sick, we should do that. Um, but our ultimate concern here in James with a sick person is spiritual. Sickness is one of God's messengers, if you will, to remind us that we do need to meet with Him and we do need to rely upon Him for every need. Every need. Our physical, our, our, every need we have, we need to bring that to Him. So basically, the ultimate concern is for this person's spiritual needs. Call for the elders. Notice who calls to the person that's sick. The, who comes? The elders of the church. Let Him call for the elders of the church. Uh, those summons here are the representatives, uh, the leaders of a local assembly, uh, the term elder here can refer to old people, <laughs> ancestors, Hebrews 11.2, for by faith the elders obtained a good report. Those mature in age, it can mean that, but I think here it should be understood as referring to those entrusted with an official uh, oversight, spiritual oversight in a, in a teaching, ruling capacity. Uh, the, the qualify here is the elders of the church. Not just old people, but the elders of the church. Some of those might be old, old geezers, but he, basically an elder is uh, some, someone that oversees, someone that's mature in their faith. First Peter 5, 1 says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, witness the sufferings of Christ, partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid grain, but with eagerness. So, the, those that come are the elders. Notice when they come, and I think it's the duty of the elders that when someone invites them to come, if you will, uh, extends this invitation for them to come, uh, they are to come. But I do think that uh, it's their duty to come when the situation warrants it. I don't think it means we're to run over to somebody's house every time they got a headache. Oh yeah, I broke my fingernail. I need you to pray for this. Let me just, my statement here is some people are always dying and some people will never call. You see how that works? Bobby's grandma always was dying. I mean, I, ever since I had known her, I'm dying now. This is it. This is my last day. Lady lived to be 80 some years old, but she was always dying. The whole time I knew her, she was always dying. And I know people that are that way. But then there are other people, they wouldn't call no matter what. Even if they died, they wouldn't ask you to come. So you have to use a little bit of common sense here. And I think the elders have to exercise this, if you will. I think when it's obvious that the circumstances require some special intervention of God, elders need to come. Okay, so. You call, the elders come. Notice how many uses this plural here, so it's not just the pastor or the minister, but it's the, those given uh, oversight of the church. Um, it should be an expression of the joint consent and care of the church, uh, and caring for the church is a weighty matter and requires many shoulders. So there's not just one person doing this, all right? Uh, so it's not Oral Roberts. It's, just a, it's the elders, plural. And so I think that's important. I think that's significant here that you're to call for elders, plural. Another thing this plurality does is it eliminates the pride of someone thinking, it was my prayer that healed them. That's how it works. So the whole point is to get, um, 
take the individual personality out of the picture so that God always gets the credit for working. If the person is healed or whatever, it's, it's, we're giving this to God and He's the one that's in charge here, not me and not some personality. So, and then that, that leads me to this question here. Are we still to do this today? And again, there's a lot of abuses of these kinds of things uh, and it's become an issue <clears throat> in a lot of churches as to whether we should still practice this uh, calling for the elders, they're coming, praying, anointing with oil, this kind of stuff. Is this something that we still should be doing today? And I think it is because of his use of the word elder instead of an apostle. I mean, some people say, well, this was only done during the era of the apostles when they could, there were people like, you know, they would, the shadow would cross over somebody, they'd be healed or whatever. But, but I really think it, it seems to have some permanent validity as elders are a regular part of the present church age. It seems to imply that maybe we should still be doing something like this. We need to be careful how we do it. But I think uh, certainly we should be doing something like this. And what is this? And that's what we need to look at. What is to be done when the elders come, he says in verse 14, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. You know, him means them, her, he. You know, we live in this uh, crazy world today where be careful how you designate some person. But the him and here and the man or whatever, I'll just... It refers to the person that's sick here, whether they're a male or female. What is to be done? Well, there's this twofold activity that James is actually admonishing the elders that they need to do whenever they're called to pray for this person. And the two, two activities, twofold activity, prayer and anointing. Those are the two things. That's what's going to be going on when these guys come to that person's side. Uh, basically, it says, let them pray over him. Uh, prayer is the primary thing that they've come to do. Uh, the elders have come to pray. That's what they've come to do. That's why they're there. They've come to pray for this person. Uh, prayer is the, grammatically, it's the main subject of the whole section. Prayer is the first duty of the elders uh, to pray over or for this person. They've come to pray. And, and and I think it, while it includes praying with them, they're probably praying with you, with the elders here. Uh, since you can't email the prayer to them, you can't phone it in. That's not that's the point here. You can't phone it in. You can let me pray for you over the phone. Click, or I'll send you an email in prayer. Pray for you. This kind. Of, you can't do that. Uh, you're supposed to come. And I think the real point in this whole section is. That person needs a human touch. It, it, God is spirit, isn't He? They want God's intervention. How's God going to do it? He's going to do it through a human being. He saved us through a human being, didn't He? And He still works through human being. So this whole point of let them pray over Him has to do with this the need for human touch. And we all need it. I mean, there are people who go all week, they never shake anybody's hand, they never get a hug from anybody, and when they come to church, they delight in getting that. I mean, it's the warmth of a human, another human being expressing the love of Christ to that person. So, it's interesting that he uses this word here, and let them pray over them. Uh, the word actually speaks of covering, and in the ancient world, a lot of people 
when they prayed for someone, they literally covered them. It says that Elijah in 1 Kings 17, 21, he stretched himself on the child. He covered the child. Elisha came and he went and laid upon the child. Um, Paul, remember uh, Eutychus, uh, the patron saint of sermon sleepers, fell out the window. Remember at midnight, Paul preaching. He fell asleep, fell out the second story balcony and, and killed himself. I, you know, I thank God I haven't had that experience before. You probably wanted to kill yourself in some of my sermons, but this guy actually killed himself. He, he fell asleep and fell off. And it says that Paul went down and fell on Eutychus, embracing him and said, trouble yourself, not his life's in it. He, he, he brought, he, Lord raised him back up. But Paul fell on this person. So there's a lot of touchy-feely that went on. Certainly in Oriental custom, much more touchy-feely than we... Um, Anglo-Saxon culture would be. Uh, it also includes laying on of hands, so covering the body. L- laying on of hands. Jesus says, um, uh, Matthew 16, 18, they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Lay hands on. Acts 28, 8, um, the father of Polybius was sick with a bloody flux and Paul entered, prayed, laid his hands on him and healed him. So there's a lot of laying on of hands that's a that's a significant act in in the scripture, um, in the uh, in the Old Testament when you brought a sacrifice to the Lord, you identified with that that lamb being slaughtered, being sacrificed. When you put your hands on his head, you you identified with that person personally, physically, touchy feely. Um, uh, it's that thing, uh, if you will. It kind of sets sets that 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 one apart, if you will. Uh, and it's certainly in this case, when the elders come and they lay their hands or they touch this person that's sick, it, it's an expression of God's love through human touch. And it sets this sick person apart as being the focus of God's special attention and care through the church. So it's, it's God sending the church to express His care and His focus on that person at that point. Now, we definitely need that expression of care. I remember when I was younger, I, I passed by the calendar. I worked two jobs, went to school, all this kind of stuff. And in the calendar, I'd see this NK, NK, NK. What is that? No doctor appointment, not this or that. And I couldn't figure out what NK was. So I asked my wife, what's, what's all this NK? The NK was no kiss. I hadn't kissed her that day. <laughs> and that was important. That was a, it's an expression of human love and touch there. And so when the elders come, it's God kissing this person. You see what I'm saying? It's the expression of his personal touch and love. Call for the elders, let them come lay hands on, pray over them and lay hands on them. And then this, the second thing, so this is a twofold activity. Come and pray over them. And then you come and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. So, so with the praying over someone comes the second activity of anointing with oil. Actually, the word here is the rubbing them with oil. <laughs> the sick person, you rub them, rub them down with oil here. We give them an oil treatment. And this is a lot of controversy with this as well. So it's, it's one of those things that we're not that familiar with what was going on. I mean, a couple of things, let me say what it's not. What is this anointing with oil? What it, let me say first of all what it isn't. And I'll try to give you my opinion as to what I think he's talking about here. But basically, a lot of times when you see something stated in the Scripture, it becomes some kind of a ritualistic practice or activity. 
It gets elevated to a position of superstition. Oh, they did that in the Bible, so we got to do it. You know, that's how you do this. I, I think I was raised in a uh, uh, charismatic church, but I got saved in a fundamental Baptist church. See how that works? <laughs> but anyway, I was saved in this fundamental Baptist, and they were they were always saying, "Plead the blood of Christ." I'm pleading the blood of Christ. Plead the blood. Well, that's a superstitious thing. That's a, that's like oh, it's like making a cross. It's the same thing. But it's a superstition. So this is not some kind of a superstitious thing. It's not magical. It, the anointing with oil has no mystical properties. It has no power to heal. The elders putting this on you. That doesn't, that's not going to heal you, alright? And it's not a sacrament. These two things that it's not. The Roman Catholic Church had made this a sacrament in the 8th century. They call it last rites or extreme unction based on this passage right here. This passage. They don't have any other grounds for it except here. And and I don't know how in the world you can get that out of this passage myself. I don't know how that you can get out of it. But it's called extreme unction. It involves the application of consecrated oil as an effective medium of forgiveness. That's the Roman Catholics for they're forgiving people through some some hocus pocus activity. So uh, someone that's in extremes of sickness, they're not able to make a conscious confession or receive absolution. And so olive oil is mixed with balls. I mean, this is how they do it. They take olive oil, they mix it with balsam, they, it's consecrated by the bishop, it's heated by breathing on it, some enchanting words are uttered, hocus pocus, I don't know how they do that, and then it's applied to the eyes, ears, nose, mouth, legs, and feet. And again, how do you exegete this nonsense out of what James says here? It isn't here, this is not here. Somebody had to read a whole bunch of stuff in here. The, and actually, what James is talking about is not getting people ready to die. He's getting people ready to return to health. That's the whole point of the whole passage. You're going to return to health. It's, it's a cure that's being anticipated here, not this person's death. All right? So this is what James is talking about. Then he's sick. Let him call for the elders. Let him pray over him. Pray over him. Anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. So it falls. And again, this practice of calling for the elders and coming, praying, anointing with oil. It kind of falls in the category of foot washing. I, I've never been to a foot washing service, but I wouldn't be against it. I, I don't have anything against it. I mean, that's probably a good thing. You know, it's, it certainly shows you. I wouldn't want my stinking feet to be washed by anybody, you know. That kind of, I don't see anything wrong with it, but it's, it's something that's not actually demanded. It's not... It's maybe allowed. It's kind of like a wedding ceremony or a funeral ceremony. Where do you get that in the scripture? It's it's allowed. It's something that we do, all right. And so I think this is something that's allowed, based I think here on what James has had to say about this business of sickness and prayer and the need for uh, some official input of the church into this person's life. So it's not a it's not an institution like baptism or, or communion. It's something that's it's a practice. It's allowed. Not everybody's going to do it, but if you do it, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, all right? So then what is the wine? Um, <clears throat> so what is? I know it, it's not magical. It's not some sacrament. So then what, are, what is it when they come in and they anoint a person? Two possibilities, two possible reasons for including this anointing with oil, and I think both are true. The first is medicinal. Uh, in the ancient world, olive oil... Uh, 
would have all kinds of medicinal properties, kind of like kerosene back in the 30s. I remember my dad was a kid in the 30s. He hit his toe with, a, with an axe and split that toe open. He did not, they didn't take him to the doctor. They, dobbed, they poured a kerosene over it, wrapped it up, and that was it. That was, that's how you did it. That was, it was kind of a cure-all. And that's the same thing with olive oil in the ancient world. It was kind of, whatever ails you, put some olive oil on it. Yeah, dob some of that on it. That's, it's kind of the, something that everybody used. In Luke 10, you have the Good Samaritan pouring oil and wine in. Isaiah 1, 6 talks about mollifying with ointment. Um, and again, God, God normally works through secondary means and causes. You think of Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, uh, he's having stomach problems, so he says, uh, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. <laughs> Use some, something medicinal to help that, all right? Um, Isaiah, he, he, was, he, he had these boils, and he told him to make a plaster out a lump of figs, Isaiah 38. And then even in John 9, where Jesus healed a man blind, he made clay, spit on the ground, made clay, and daubed that on his eye. Sometimes God uses secondary means to bring about person's healing. Uh, <clears throat> so I think basically, um, and, and think about this, the, these ancient medicinal benefits of essential oils have now reemerged recently as a real blessing and a surprise to a lot of people. My wife uses essential oils. A lot of people do now. They've found out, man, that thing actually works. You put that... I had a nephew that got bit by a black widow spider. They used all these oils on him. Can't even, doesn't even have a scar. How does that work? I mean, is this, they, they found that these people were pretty smart back then. They, they used things to help. And God uses this. So basically, I think one thing he's saying here is <clears throat> take your medicine. So the elders show up and say, make sure you, are you taking your medicine? <laughs> are you off your medicine meds again? You know, this, I don't have to keep coming back here. You need to start taking your medicine. So, do the chemotherapy. Do the radiation. You see what I'm saying here? Nothing wrong with that. Do that. God very well could work through that. He, and, he, and He does do that normally. But So it can't be medicinal, the anointing with oil. And it's also symbolic, if you will. Certainly, anointing oil carries this rich biblical symbolism of God's presence, His involvement in the healing activity. In fact, every reference uh, to... Uh, oil in in the Old Testament and, and I think even in the New is a plea for the Holy Spirit's action uh, as a, as consecrate. I mean, Aaron the oil when they consecrate him as the oil ran down on his beard. How they do it? Consecrate the the oil speaks of the Holy Spirit setting this person apart. It's the presence of the Spirit. It's the symbol of the Holy Spirit. If you will, so it's this, and also any time a prophet, a priest, or a king, they weren't voted into office; they were they were ordained, and they 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 anointed. That's what Messiah is. He's the anointed one. So this person is being anointed, if you will, and actually it's an appeal. Uh, it's a setting that person apart, and it reinforcing, if you will. <clears throat> Uh, the Spirit's work in this person's life. And, and the oil kind of is symbolic of that and reinforces that idea. And then that's even reinforced is you anoint them in the name of the Lord. So I'm doing this. I'm not doing this because it's magical. I'm doing this, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking to the Lord to do something. I'm doing this on His authority and for His glory, if you will. So it, it's relating the activity 
to be in keeping with the character, the nature, the will, and the purpose of God for this person. I'm bringing God into this situation here, and the oil is a symbol of God, God touching this person's life and accomplish His will and person, His will and purpose for this needy person. So the elders do this in reliance on the Lord, in the name of the Lord, uh, based on His authority, uh, that He would work on behalf of this needy person. Jesus says in Mark 16, 7, these signs shall follow them and in my name shall they cast out demons. So it's it's always in His name, in the name of the Lord that these things are done. The elders can't do anything. We don't have any power. God's the one that's doing this, alright? So it's in His name that we come. It's in His power. This person's healed because God does it. Notice the expected results of such prayer. Verse 15. (coughs) Try to get through it. And the prayer of faith will restore the one that's sick and the Lord will raise him up. So, again, the instrumental means here for raising this person up is the prayer of faith. Uh, prayer is the fountain. Uh, faith is a fountain uh, of prayer and prayer should be nothing less than the exercise of faith. So this, uh, this word, actually interesting, this word prayer here is translated vow. Uh, by Paul. Remember, Paul was going up to Jerusalem because he had a vow. Same word. This prayer of faith, if you will, this vow, it's a strong desire. So, we're not coming in, the elders aren't showing up to give this now lay me down to sleep prayer. They're coming in, oh God, please, work on behalf of this person. You see what I'm saying? This is not some little normal thing. This is something where we're it's a fervent belief and expectation for something to happen. And again, it's more of a vow, if you will. It's, it's what Paul uses in Romans 9.3 when he says, I could wish myself a curse for Israel's sake that they might be saved. I'd, I'd go to hell for Israel to come to know Christ as their Savior. So it's that kind of prayer, if you will. Um, it's interesting, he doesn't mention olive oil again. And again, it's not the oil that does anything. It's actually not even the prayer. It's the prayer of faith. That's what we're looking for here in this situation. We're bringing a prayer, but it's not now let me down and see. It's a prayer, a believing prayer. It expresses absolute confidence in the Lord. God can do this. And it's a deference, of course. With that confidence comes a deference to His will. If He wants to do it, He can do it. You see how that works? I'm not making Him do it. I can't command Him to do it but I know that He can do it. I've got confidence in Him, and I'm, I'm deferring to Him. It's yours, God. That I give this person over to you. See how this works? Um, it reminds me of the lady who, remember the lady who was afflicted with this uh, issue of blood, and she said, if I could just touch the, touch the hem of His garment, I'll be healed. And she was. Was the touching what healed her? No. Jesus says it's your faith that heals you. But she did touch him. <laughs> her faith actually caused her to touch him. He was, I mean, she, she had to do some stuff to touch him here. So again, it's, uh, it's, it's the prayer of faith, if you will. Over and over again in the Scripture we see unbelief is, is a hindrance to God's works. Uh, Jesus could do no, not many works because of their unbelief. Uh, faith is this trusting reliance. Uh, it's the divinely appointed means through which God works. And again, it's not demanding my way. 
but it's always connected to this implied condition so far as it accords to your will. I'm only asking your will to be done for this person. That's what I want, all right? I'm not demanding you to do what I want, but I want your will. And so, 1 John 5, 14, and this is the confidence that we have in Him if we ask anything according to His will. He hears us, all right? So this is a, the implied, there's always an implied condition in prayer. It has to be according to the will of God. You don't, you don't want, I don't care if it's not your will, I want it done. Now you're in big trouble when you're doing that. So this is not what's going on here. So the implied condition is as far as it accords with God's will. Notice the result and effects here that James gives us says, it shall save and restore the sick. This word save, translated save here, means to rescue, to preserve safe, unharmed, to cure, to heal, to restore to health. Notice too, it doesn't carry a time signature. It doesn't say right then and there. Now that's what our tent people will say. Right now, I mean, as soon as I, the magic word leaves my lips, bang, you're going to be... Doesn't, there's no time signature at all in this. So it could be that you're going to be healed, it might be immediate, it could be gradual. As a third option, it could be permanent. (laughs) You know what permanent means, don't you? It means I go to glory and get a new body and I quit messing with this one, all right? Thank the Lord for that. So there's three actually options here when when He says God's going to heal you. Uh, These miraculous healings are extremely rare. There's only two in the Old Testament. That's a big book. That's a lot of stuff, too. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus does a lot of healing, but usually there's their credentials. This is he's showing that he actually is the Son of God. Only the Son of God could do that. Now we elders can't do it. You can't do it. But the Son of God can do that. And so they're actually validating who he said he was, if you will. Uh, he and 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 again. Not everybody was healed. Jesus doesn't heal everybody. Uh, in the New Testament, you have a lot of people that weren't healed. In first in Second Timothy four four twenty, Paul's writing to Timothy. He says, "Tromphemus, I've left in Miletum sick." <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, Paul, who could just you know, fell on this kid that died, <laughs> and he wrote and he rose from the dead. But he leaves Tromphemus sick in Miletus. He's still sick. He didn't heal him. So not everybody gets healed. Paul even prayed about this thorn in the flesh. And, and God says, no, no, I'm not taking away. <laughs> you're gonna, you're, my grace is sufficient, this kind of a thing. So, and again, I don't think we can say that Paul didn't have faith. I, wouldn't, I, won't, I don't want to be guilty of that. I mean, that's not the issue. I didn't have enough faith, or you didn't have enough faith. That's not the issue. It has to do with the will of God. It has to do with the will of God. It needs to be understood that physical, temp- physical healing is always temporary. I have to throw these things in. You know, it's a shame that you have to qualify and explain yourself and all these things, but I have to. First of all, any, any kind of healing is always temporary at best. Even Lazarus died. This guy was raised from the dead. He still died later. He still It's temporary. And we all are going to eventually die. Healing and health must always be subordinate to the plan and purpose of God. 
Uh, it's a false assumption to think that God wants everybody to be perfectly happy, clappy, healthy, wealthy, you know, healing and atonement. That's foolishness. That's not true. That's a false assumption. We will never have perfect health until we get to heaven. Until we're glorified. Wherever that may be, right? Notice that the resultant effects here of this prayer of faith and anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Uh, it says it shall save the sick. And the ultimate cause is that the Lord shall raise him up. And uh, this idea of raise up is, uh, is a word that means to excite, rouse, awaken, restore to health. Vigor, and in some cases, raised from the dead. Just same word is used to people that were raised from the dead. The Lord shall restore him, to raise him, in this case, from his sickness. Um, <clears throat> Mark one thirty one, Matthew eight fifteen, where Jesus kind of lifted her up, raised up the little sick kid, the, the, the kid that was dying. Uh, these kind of things. So the idea that he, the Lord is going to raise him up. Uh, so again, it should be should go without saying it's not the elders who heal the person. Uh, faith, the worth of anyone's faith is only as good as the object it's placed in. Faith has to have an object. Uh, in this case, it's in the one doing the raising. And it's God that's going to raise them up, not me. And I wrote myself a note here. Hey, if I die, guess what? God's going to raise me up. Isn't He? He's going to raise you up. He is going to raise me up. Even if I die, He's going to raise me up. It's in His hand. He's the one doing all the raising here. And so, again, that's, that's, the, that's the result of that is that God is the one that, that raises us up. And then He adds another thing, forgiveness. And, you know, well, I thought we were talking about healing. Well, he brings in forgiveness. And if he commits sin, they'll be forgiven him. So he gives this kind of an added blessing here. Besides the healing, there's this hypothetical statement, if he commits sin, it's not since he sinned, since he sinned and this caught, brought this on himself. That's not the case. He says if he, if he sinned, if there's some, some issue in his life that maybe contributed to this, this sin, this, this lack of health, if you will, then he needs to confess that and forsake that. The sin uh, can be the case. It's not always the direct cause. You have Job in the Old Testament. You have the man born blind in John 9. Who did sin, this man or his parents? And Jesus, neither one is for the glory of God. So it's not the sin is not always the issue. But there always is this haunting possibility that it may be due to something that I've done, all right? Uh, like the Lord's Supper addendum in 1 Corinthians 11.30, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you. They weren't proper behavior for the Lord's Supper. Um, sickness often awakens a consciousness of sin in the sufferer. Usually when you're sick, you, you think about these kind of things. I mean, things that maybe you would never have thought about if you weren't sick. Um, in a general sense, all sickness, disease, aging, death are the result of sin, and they express our partnership in this fallen race. And it should remind us that we should avoid sin like we avoid sickness. I don't like being sick. Well, I shouldn't like sin either. <laughs> I should stay away from that as much as I can. Oh, you've got a, got a cold? I, I won't come over, right? This kind of thing. <laughs> okay? Uh, this kind of So notice it, the added assurance here, if he commits sin, he shall be forgiven. The promise here is 
they will be forgiven him. It carries the implied condition that he's confessed it, he's turned for it, he's, he's, he's trusting it. And you know, there may be cases where in our life uh, there are things that we've done in the past that have affected us. Um, alcoholism, drugs, immorality, those things have a continuing effect on you. Uh, we certainly need to be confessing and forsaking those things. Um, I guess the bottom line on all this is you can't take theology out of medicine. We'd like to in our culture. Oh, it's the doctor. That's what you need is a good doctor. No, good doctor is nice, but you can't take theology out of medicine or your health or your well-being. They'll be forgiven him if he confessed and forsakes them. Then he, he adds this duty of mutual confession in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins one to another. Confessors agree with God uh, about something in your life that, that is not, not, not honoring to him, that's wrong. He says it's wrong. You say it's wrong too. That's what it means. To say the same. Uh, we're exhorted to make a habit of confessing and prayer. And notice it's your sin here. So it's somehow or another... We've gone from the elders praying over this person to the whole church. He, did, he here brings in the whole assembly. And he's writing a letter to the whole assembly. He threw in this thing about the elders. But now he's talking to all of us here. Therefore, confess your sins. And this is actually everybody. We're to be in the habit of confessing uh, our shortcomings to one another. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, says, Confession is an act of mortification. It is, as it were, the vomit of the soul. Sin is sweet in commission, but bitter in remembrance. You know, there's one thing I've always hated growing up as a kid. I hated throwing up. I'd do anything I could to prove, I don't want to throw up. But you know, after I threw up, I, went, I feel better now. <laughs> I feel much better now. But I didn't want to do it. But after I did it, it's like, hey, that's a great relief. <laughs> Thank the Lord for that. So here, the same thing with confession it's like the vomit of the soul, if you will. It's something that's irksome to the flesh, but healthy to the spirit. Uh, and again, this confession is not something magical, official, sacerdotal, but it's brotherly. And that, the, the point in this section here is that one another, that one, you know, we share one, we're not perfect, you know. Hey, I'm, I'm having difficulty with this, I need you to pray for me, um, or um, I need this, my family's in need this. We need to be open and honest and praying for one another, acknowledging our sin, our guilt. And again, uh, I don't think he's calling for indiscriminate uh, confession. Let me give you three guidelines for confessing. I think they're on the outline. Basically, all sin are to be confessed to God. Uh, he's the primary person that we've sinned against. And uh, he's always aware of our sin. And, and actually, he's the only one that can forgive. I can't forgive myself. You can't forgive yourself. Only God can forgive us. So we, we, all sin is to be against thee and thee only and by sin. Psalm 51, 4. Um, and then some sins are to be confessed to individuals. And the area of commission should be the area of confession. In other words, we confess something that we've done wrong to the people that it's affected not people that had nothing to do with it, don't need to be involved in it, don't need to be here about it, don't need to be brought, drug into this messy whatever. So it's just to that little group that's aware of this. All right? Some sins that be confessed and be limited to those who are aware and affected of it. And I think that's probably Matthew 18, 15, and Matthew 5, 23 and following. And then finally, a few sins are to be confessed to the whole church. 
uh, when sin becomes a public scandal, you read about it in the paper, guess what? <laughs> you need to tell everybody. You need to stand in front of everybody and say, especially if it's, if it's damaged the corporate testimony of the church, you need to publicly acknowledge that sin. Public sin should be publicly confessed. Private sin should be privately confessed. Besetting sin should be confessed very selectively. Yeah, I've got this problem. Um, who can I share that with to pray with me? Don't do that to everybody. Make sure it's somebody that loves you, that keeps confidences, and will pray with you and is committed to you on that. All right. Again, that's uh, <clears throat> forgiveness, assurance and pardon, the duties of mutual confession. And then he gives the consequences here. Pray one for another that you may be healed. So the mutual prayer for one another um, and the mutual confession, if you will, uh, these kind of things support uh, a mutual love and fellowship in a local assembly. Ephesians 6.18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching for the purpose of all perseverance, supplication for the saints. First uh, Thessalonians 5.23, brethren, pray for us. So the brethren, we need to pray for one another, the brethren. Um, we're to bear one another's burdens, pray for one another. Our labors are great. <clears throat> Our corruptions are many. Our temptations are strong. So we need to be praying uh, that the Lord would work in our hearts to make us sensitive uh, to our sins, sensitive to the needs of others, and be there to comfort, counsel, correct, reprove, whatever, uh, in, a, in a mutual fellowship and love. Notice he adds, and pray for one another that you may be healed. Um, in some sense, all of us stand in need of healing. I bet there's not a person in this room that doesn't have something that needs the touch of God to be healed. I bet there's not a single person here. Actually, we're all sick and we're all sinners. And we all need the touch of God's hand to heal us. Pray one for another that you may be healed. And again, the praying here is not limited to the elders, but it's something that we as a fellowship of believers are to be doing on a regular basis. Um, so let me just see if I can wrap this up here. <clears throat> I could go off in seven more directions. but I w- In the Old Testament, you have God telling Abimelech that he needs to have Abraham to pray for him because he's a prophet. Now, it's interesting, when you read the passage in Genesis 20, God comes to Abimelech and he says, you're a dead man. (laughs) That's not exactly gospel, but it'll certainly make you think about the gospel at that point. But God actually tells this this ruler, you're a dead man. Remember, and God's going to kill him because he's taken Abraham's wife. And Abraham's not exactly the purest of saints in this matter, all right? He shouldn't, he shouldn't imply that she was his sister. <laughs> but, so here, but God, how does God look at Abraham? He's a prophet. So you don't have to be perfect, do you? Apparently not. Abraham wasn't perfect, was he? No, he wasn't. Yeah, he shouldn't have got us in this mess. God says, have this man pray for you. Here's a person... The idea of him being a prophet is the idea of someone that actually believes God. This man believes God. He believes His Word. Um, let me, and then I wish we had another day or two. We look at Romans chapter four. Let me look at Romans chapter four and verse seventeen. Let me just read it. 
It says here, <clears throat> talking about the faith of Abraham, and Paul says, As written, the father of many nations have I made you, in the sight of him who believed, even God, who gives life to the dead, and calls into being that which does it. Listen, this is faith, isn't it? Now, we talking about faith here, the prayer of faith. Now, this is Abraham, what, he describes him as the father of faith, and he says, He believed in God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which has been spoken, so shall your descendants be. In verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old and deadness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20, Yet with respect to the promise of God, he didn't waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it's reckoned him as righteousness. In the next section, he's going to talk about the prayer of a righteous man avails much. All right. So here, here we're talking about call for the elders, call for one another, pray for one another. We need to do this and believe God. I mean, what is this business of unbelieving believers. God can't do this. Is that what we're saying? God can't do that? Um, we, we need to believe God. We need to seek the, search, the church's support in our affliction. Jeremiah 33.3 says, Call unto me and I will answer thee, show you great and mighty things. Do we not believe that anymore? Is that, do we take that out? Is that not in there in your Bible anymore? When our circumstances involve sickness and suffering, let me close with this, we have the privilege of relating that back to God by officially enlisting the church's help to pray for us. On occasion, we may need to call for the elders and have them come and lay hands on us in prayer, anointing us with oil in the name of the Lord. And it's something that demonstrates, if you will, the official condescension of God to come down through His church and His people and touch your life and put you, focus on you as the focal point of His His work in your your heart and your life, if you will. It's a tangible confirmation, encouragement of our faith, implying a plea for the Holy Spirit to uh, enable, uh, to heal, to restore this person to health. Psalm 103, 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all His benefits, who forgives all my iniquities and heals all my diseases. If you've ever been healed, guess who did it? God did it. I, yeah, I could only think of this as, Lord, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Help me to disbelieve you. And again, I'm not demanding He heals in every case. I'm just, I just want to bring it to Him as a faithful child and trust Him with the answer. Right? and have His will done in my life. Father, we thank You for this passage in James. We pray that it may have been helpful to us today. Help us to trust You and to believe in You and to be believing believers in what God can do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.